In our evening talks, especially starting today, there'll be especially a focus on individual practice. Again, that way that we're having the morning, afternoon, evening have certain uh, distinct qualities that get at our larger theme of awakening and service and action. And the theme I want to explore this evening is particularly about how we work with sometimes challenging aspects of thinking. In particular, how we practice with views, opinions, and what we might call the judgmental mind. And in all of this, we want to practice with aspects of thinking which are in a way ineliminable. We need a certain kind of thinking to understand the world, to understand ourselves, to understand the roots of suffering. And yet there are tendencies to to have that thinking be distorted or connected with greed, hatred, and delusion. And how do we work through that? How do we work through that challenge so that we can move towards our views more reflecting wisdom and so that we can work through tendencies to be judgmental but find where there might be wise discernment that is caught up in being judgmental. So in a way, it's about these very important practices with views and judgments that are, um, take us to very crucial um, challenges for any time we work in groups or organizations or deal with issues because there always are views, there always are positions. And how do we do that skillfully? So I think a very a crucial issue. And then um, tomorrow, and particularly two nights from now, we'll work in a similar way with the question of practicing with challenging emotions. And so in a way, this follows from the instructions this morning, which were more rudimentary. Remember that we made that distinction between uh, mindfulness of thoughts and emotions and how we work skillfully with thoughts and emotions. The first is more receptive, uh, typically, and more just being with what is. And the second, the working skillfully with thoughts and emotions, is more active and, we might say, more uh, intervening to shift the situation or to um, take us out of a trap or being stuck and so forth. So that's the theme for tonight. And uh, I'll invite us, if you feel so called, to keep a little bit of body awareness as you listen. And to 
continue that practice of inner and outer attention, which actually I think as we were looking at in our earlier discussion, can help the experience, let's say, of listening to a talk be somewhat broader. Sometimes we just get hooked into the cognitive dimension of a talk and we might not open always to the emotional or intuitive aspects of a talk for some of us. And, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly fine with people taking notes and I take notes myself when David speaks. Uh, But sometimes when we take notes, we, we have to check, do we get caught into an exclusively cognitive dimension? And we're really encouraging that way of opening to all these dimensions of experience. So I think we can see why uh, working with views and judgmental mind and working with these aspects of thinking is an important question. You know, we can we can see how often in well meaning organizations among well-meaning people, there can be a kind of dogmatism. There can be a grasping after views. There can be battles between views. There can be demonization of the opponent, as we were, as was mentioned earlier. There can be a need to be right and the other person wrong, the dualism that David was talking about. All of this manifests, we might say, in what sometimes is called the battle of ideas, which itself suggests that kind of dualism and the use of ideas and thinking as a weapon. And there's a way in which many of us probably have already uh, responded or reacted negatively to that. For some people, it leads them to run from anyone called an activist. Who are presumed to have the dogmatic disease. And I've talked to people like that. Maybe we've had that experience of, oh, I just can't stand those people just fighting with each other, you know, and they should practice mindfulness more, you know, and and so forth. And and so it's, it's very clear. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, we need a certain kind of discernment about the world. We need uh, and make use of many of these ways of understanding the world that have come through uh, theories or understandings of the uh, nature of the economy or politics or the roots of conflict. And there's a lot of value there. So how do we, how do we sort that out? How do we work with the... Um, and, and recognize the distortions that are possible with views of political systems, views of how we should live, and so forth. How do we, how do we see where we can get stuck, where, we, where there can be distortions, and still make use of discernments, of seeing the world clearly? And another way to say it is, how can we see the world through Dharma eyes? With the eyes of wisdom. Because I don't think that our practice leads us to, to, uh, as we've been saying the last uh, 
uh, last period of time doesn't lead us just to look at ourselves. We really want to look at all the phenomena. So how do we do that? So I think you get that, how it's a, a question, right? And this also, I think, was, was very much a question for the Buddha. And again, in, in these more, in the evening talks, we'll uh, give some grounding in traditional teachings, you know, some as I did with uh, speech practice this afternoon. And so working with views was a very important part of traditional practice. And, you know, it was uh, one whole part of the Eightfold Path is called uh, right view, or we might say mature view or uh, wise view. And that, that is meant to be linked with all the other factors of the path, with, with meditation, with ethics, and so forth. Sometimes translated as uh, right understanding or wise understanding. And so there was a way to understand the world, but it's very clear from the teachings of the Buddha that he was very critical of uh, dogmatic views, of tendencies to grasp after views, and in a sense, various ways that we misuse the thinking process. We might say, driven by unconscious greed, hatred, delusion. Well, delusion is going to be unconscious anyway, but And so some of you know the, the stories that are there that sort of bring out this, this teaching. Uh, some of you know the story of the man who was shot by a poison arrow. And the Buddha said, if someone were to say, I won't take out the arrow until I know what it was made of, what kind of bird feather was used? Where was the arrow made? Who made the arrow? What color was it? You know, um, and, and so forth. Who was the shooter? What were the, who was the shooter's parents? What was their uh, lineage? And so forth. He said, if we would ask all these questions, the person shot by the arrow would surely die. And he used that as an analogy to point to Uh, unskillful development of views. And he basically said we would rather directly, simply take out the arrow and save the person. And there are a number of analogies and almost parables like this. In, In a sense, the Buddha taught at times in a way similar to how Jesus taught with parables. And another one you may know, he said that the teachings are like a raft. They take us to the other shore, meaning to liberation. Someone who got to the other shore and carried the raft around on his or her back would be called a fool. (laughs) There's something being pointed to here, right? That we want to be light with our theories, light with our ideas. And if you remember the um, part of the 14 
precepts of the order of interbeing from Thich Nhat Hanh that I read yesterday, a very similar line, do not be idolatrous about any teachings. They are only guiding means. And so with the, uh, with the teachings, we have a very, very pragmatic view of how to use thinking and a uh, distrust of views that get hardened, that become dogmatic, that are grasped after. In fact, the teachings are sometimes called the teachings of the middle way. And it's a middle way between um, extreme views. One extreme view is called nihilism, thinking that nothing matters. Another extreme view is called eternalism, some sense of every of, of um, permanence and a kind of um, in both cases, there is a movement beyond uh, what actually can be known. And the Buddha was very clear that views should be a kind of direct reflection of what we know with direct experience, of what we can know very directly and very simply. And there's this very interesting um, model that I want to talk about. This is where we will work with the part of the packet the, called the, the Ladder of Inference, which really, I think, in a contemporary way, makes a, ver- a fairly similar point and particularly directs us to be careful with thinking. And so if you look at this model, it, it was developed by a man named Chris Argeris, who was a teacher, I believe, at... Um, Uh, Harvard Business School. So go back to that famous institution. And uh, he developed this in an organizational context. I'm using it in a little bit different way. But it's 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 a kind of a simple model. It's saying that at any given moment, there is, in a sense, um, an unlimited pool of data that we can draw from. At this very moment, my guess is that the majority of you are listening to my words. I can tell a little bit by your eyes. Of course, I don't fully know. There's unlimited, there's an unlimited pool of possible thoughts you could have that are different, that would take you in a different direction than listening to my words. You know, you could be looking out the window. You could be focusing on different sense objects. You could be really interested in your neighbor's socks and make the mental note, I really want to ask the person where he or she got those socks after the retreat. You you could be going into the past. You could be working with some unresolved issue. You could be uh, closing your eyes and and remembering, um, wasn't that a good dinner? And you could be going in all sorts of directions, right? Unlimited possible data you could focus on. And yet, we're always focusing on a particular finite group of data. In this case, everyone here is very, um, what, um, conscientiously listening to my words and taking them in. Okay? And that, so if we look at the, at the um, picture, 
we have first the observable data, and then we have a certain selection of data. And as you can see, the uh, metaphor is that we go up the ladder, and then we we go we we select out a certain amount of data that we actually pay attention to. At a certain further level, we start to give meaning. We add meaning to the process. This is a simplification, but but it's a useful simplification. We give meaning to the process. So you might be saying, didn't I think about the latter event? Didn't I hear about that somewhere else? Uh, I think so. Or looks like a really cool model. Or, you know... Uh, you know, or we might be giving meaning to that, the stories of the raft or the poisoned arrow with the Buddha. You know, we might say, that's a really good, I want to remember that. I have to tell that to my dogmatic friend. <laughs> you know, so we may, we may be making meaning, right? And we may uh, go further up the ladder. We may draw certain, we may make certain assumptions, draw conclusions, <laughs> adopt beliefs, take actions. So a few examples. Um, I'm part, let's say I'm, I'm part of a, uh, a workplace and we have a 9 a.m. meeting. And uh, everyone comes on time but one person who comes in half an hour late. And maybe it's happened three times before. And I start selecting data which might be, what, the person's late entry, the fact that's happened before, and then I start adding meanings. What possible meanings might I add? The person is disrespectful. You can see how this starts to link with the judgmental mind, or potentially. The person is disrespectful. Where else might, might I go? He has a secret life. What? <laughs> Say again? He has a secret life. <laughs> <laughs> he has a secret life. Okay. He's a slacker. He's a slacker. He's a power hungry person. What? He has young children and maybe they're having, maybe one of them's ill, right? We can be empathic. We don't have to be judgmental. But we're still going up the ladder, right? And we may, we may be light, as we go up the ladder, say, I'm not sure what's happening. Maybe he's ill. That's pretty lightly held, right? Or I might say, this is the fourth time. He's a slacker. If he gets a raise and I don't, I'm out of here. Right. So you see, get a sense of what going up the ladder means. It can be done in a way that's held lightly. It can be done, actually, in a way that's helpful. There's nothing about going up the ladder that in itself is a problem. It's when we go up the ladder and are dogmatic or are driven by our reactivity. Like, I might not like this person, and I might develop a whole scenario based on this one incident, right? I might say, definitely need psychotherapy. I can really imagine the roots of this behavior. They clearly, it clearly came from... Um, acting out against his parents, who must have been somewhat oppressive and probably went back generations. <laughs> so you get the idea. Another, another story, this is from my colleague uh, Sylvia Borstein, who teaches at Spirit Rock. 
And she wanted to do a retreat at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And she called up the switchboard and said, I'd like to do a retreat. Can I uh, talk to the person in charge of retreats? And the switchboard operator says, oh, yes, that's Steve, but he's not here now. He'll be back later in the afternoon. Could you call back then? She said, sure. She calls back in the afternoon, reaches the switchboard operator, who says, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, Steve just walked out. Maybe call back tomorrow morning. She calls back tomorrow morning. The switchboard operator says, oh, you know, Steve was caught in really bad traffic. He's not in yet. At which point Sylvia says, maybe I'm not supposed to do the retreat. At which point the switchboard operator says in true Zen style, no, I think it means that Steve is not here. (laughs) Okay. And so this becomes actually very interesting to look at. It, that I find this model extremely helpful as a reference point, and particularly in difficult conversations. If you have this model, you can watch people going up the ladder all the time. And often going up the ladder leads to hardened positions. Most wars around positions are fought way up the ladder. And in fact, what mediators do, what peacemakers and mediators do, is they bring people down the ladder to be with more direct experience. And our Buddhist practice does something very similar. We actually learn how to be with more direct experience, the direct experience with emotions, the body, thoughts. And we, we really become very discerning on when we are making interpretations. And this becomes a tremendous asset for our practice, for our work with um, groups, organizations, and in the difficult circumstances. When we, you know, this really connects very much with the speech practice. When we can observe someone, oh, someone is going up the ladder and making all sorts of assumptions and conclusions, and as far away from the actual experience, right? We can, first of all, see that, and it becomes very interesting, a little bit sad, to just watch that happen all the time, because one reason that people go up the ladder is they become reactive. They become triggered. And again, you can probably think of examples from your own experience. When you've, something has happened and you became reactive, do you go up the ladder? Do you go to negative stories, negative scenarios? When I do one-on-one work with people, the most common guidance I give is watch the negative stories you're telling yourself. The single most common guidance. Because the people are driven sometimes by pain to go up the ladder to find an explanation. My relationship didn't work this time. This is the third relationship that didn't work. I must be this kind of person, right? And we go far away from staying with the direct experience. So for practice, it's to notice 
how we can go. One of the practices with views is to notice how far removed from actual experience are our views and how fixed are they and to notice them. Another, another practice um, another practice that we can do is simply to start to take an inventory of what our views actually are. What are my most common views? When I look in my experience, what and how far up the ladder are they? My political views, my spiritual views, any sorts of views, because spiritual views can get out there, can't they? We were talking about some of the views of karma earlier, and they can get out there. Um, I remember Jack Kornfield told the story of a woman whose husband died, and she was in connection with uh, spiritual teachers and healers from a variety of traditions, and many of them came to her and said, I had a vision of your husband and he's in an upper heaven, and he's doing just great. And another one would say, you know, he's in a little bit of trouble now. And they would all come with incredible sincerity, and they were very different. And she was very confused. And she went to Jack, I think his response, if I remember correctly, was, what do you really know? And how do you know it? And look to your own experience. And... and be a little careful with views which go far away from experience. So we want to track our own views. That's, that's an exercise that we can, we can uh, do. We can see to what extent is there grasping connected with my views? To what extent am I finding a kind of self-identity by having a certain view? Very common, right? You know, I will have this political view and I will stand up for it. You know, something like that. And again, we're not saying that views in themselves are problematic. What's problematic is the dogmatism, the grasping, the going far away from experience. And so we want to look at all those qualities in terms of, in terms of our views. Another practice that we can do with views, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning being mindful of the views. See what our top five is, our top ten views are. It's a practice we can do you know, over a month or something just to really look, look at our views. And we can also, uh, when we're noticing them, we can see what do they feel like? What are my thoughts? What's my energy like? What are the emotions? What's there with, with these views? Is there tension? What's happening with the views? And to really investigate them. Another practice that I find incredibly valuable and, and did uh, a lot for several years, is to look for when there is a difference of views and we get very stuck on our views. In other words, when we're not receptive to someone else's view. And I, I learned about this in an interesting way uh, at, um, at a, uh, a gathering, a three-year gathering. Um, in a past life, I taught... Uh, at universities for seven years. <laughs> I'm using past life metaphorically because it seems a long time ago. You know, uh, I taught at universities for seven years and I, um, I taught in the philosophy department. I also taught meditation, 
but they wouldn't let me teach that in the philosophy department. Uh, but so I taught it on the outside for no credit. But they got credit in heaven. <laughs> Non-Buddhist joke. <laughs> okay. uh, Did you get paid in heaven? <laughs> well, I was partly living in Kentucky, and I was going out to the monastery in Gethsemane, so I think that, that was a kind of reward. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in any case, um, I, I, was, I, was kind of, I was a young teacher, and uh, I was invited to go to this, uh, really what became an international gathering called Revisioning Philosophy. It was people who wanted to connect this ancient discipline, which literally means love of wisdom, and, and really has lost its moorings, in the, uh, particularly in the 20th century, 21st century. And it became really about uh, kind of overly intellectualized, uh, overly scientific, scientistic approach to things, and really lost a lot of the wisdom dimension. And so this group of people wanted to restore several dimensions that had been lost. They want, there were people who wanted to restore the wisdom dimension. People wanted to connect uh, um, philosophy and thinking with the emotions, with the body. And wonderful people, some you know, really innovative people. I was very pleased to be part of that. And uh, there were people who were well-known, like Houston Smith. Some of you know his name. Wonderful. Who was actually one of my mentors, um, and uh, Jacob Needleman, who was at uh, San Francisco State. Some of you maybe studied with him, right? Um, and uh, Susan Griffin was part of it. Who's a great feminist writer and philosopher. And Charlene Spretnik was part of it. So some quite wonderful people. And um, what we noticed very soon in our gatherings was that when there were differences of views, these wise beings didn't seem that different from anyone else. <laughs> it was very interesting. It was, for me, it was a little disillusioning because uh, you know, most of these people were quite a bit older than me and I was kind of looking up to them. But anyway, um, and so there was um, one of the members of the group was a man named Robert McDermott who later became president of CIIS, California Institute of Integral Studies, where you're, you're studying, right? Maybe some other people have studied there. Any, who else has studied there? Anyone else? Yeah. 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 And uh, Robert made the suggestion, which really connected with me, I think connected with many people. He said, instead of taking a difference of views, or let me say, take a difference of views as a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. Meaning, be interested in why there might be a reaction to someone else having a different view. Doesn't mean we give up our views, doesn't mean our view might not be a good view to have, but look at the charge and the reaction. Why am I reacting? What's there? Is there something in my past which makes me not like this view? What, what's the history that led me to be so uh, reactive towards this other view? Might I learn something from this person? And so that was exciting for me. For a number of years, I took that practice. And when I noticed myself 
having some uh, charge around a difference of views, I inquired and I used it in teaching a lot. And people loved it, actually. It really makes a lot come alive, right? It's really good to do if, if, if the other person's doing it as well. You know, in our group, we did that a lot. And I think it actually was very fruitful. So that's, that's a, a third practice with views. Another practice might be to listen to other views with openness and sort of drop having to insist on one's views. And I thought of uh, uh, an experience which was important in that way. I think right before 9-11, I and a number of other people engaged in an interfaith retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory which hadn't seen that many retreats. <laughs> um, they permitted us to be there, but they wouldn't let us use their bathrooms. <laughs> so they wanted you to do what? <laughs> I think they didn't want us to be there, but um, what someone was very ingenious and we rented a big RV, you know, one of those big vans that has a bathroom in the back. And we, it also provided shade because the only place they would let us meet was in a parking lot. And so a group of us met for five days and did silent retreat with talking um, at Los Alamos, sitting a lot in the shade provided by the RV in the Los Alamos parking lot for five days. And we would camp, we camped at a nearby campsite. Everyone know Los Alamos is in New Mexico. People, some of you may not know, it's, it's actually a main place where nuclear weapons are researched and made. That's where the first atomic bomb was researched. And we went to, there was a museum about the history of nuclear weapons, which tended to emphasize one side of the story. Uh, and, but what was in, what I, why I'm bringing this up, you know, is, is that uh, we would, every day for lunch, we would go in the Los Alamos cafeteria and we would meet with the scientists and engineers. Not anything planned, but we would just sit down. And I think they knew that there were people there who uh, may have uh, been questioning the whole operation. I don't know if that retreat could happen after 9-11. Possibly not. You know? uh, and we, and we, we sat there and we would talk to people we talked to the scientists and it was very interesting practice because some of my colleagues got into very contentious disputes about views. And then we would come back in the evening and we would debrief what happened. And some people tried to actually listen to the scientists who had very different views and be open to them. It was a very interesting experience. I actually did some writing about that. Maybe I can, I can get that to you if you're interested. Um, I called my, I wrote an essay on the experience and I called it the parking lot sutra. <laughs> so, so 
amazing practice to really work with, uh, work with views. You get a sense of the practice, notice them, track your own views, see, where, see what the experience is. Where is their grasping? Where is their stuckness? And you see how this could be done individually as a practice. This could be done in uh, a relationship. This could be done in an organization, in a group. And there could be, it could be done in a social change movement. You know, I think a lot, you know, a lot of movements have had that lightness, uh, really get to the pragmatic basics, you know, and not so much get into all these fights about views. I think the civil rights movement had that quality. You know, it was based on a very clear moral vision, I believe. And there wasn't so much, there weren't so many disputes about this understanding. There were, over time, there were some, you know, about, about where we go. But a lot of the movement didn't have those sort of disputes. Second piece about the judgmental mind. There's really, there are really some similar ways to look at this and work with it. I'm defining judgmental mind as a reaction in which we make a negative evaluation, particularly, it could be positive, I think, but I'm focusing on negative evaluations of self or other. So I think we know what I'm meaning by this, but some examples, you know, maybe an example like the one I gave earlier. A relationship ends, and I, for two months or two years, I blame myself. I get into very strong self-judgment, which can even go into depression. Very strong self-judgment. Or I might go the opposite way and judge my former partner. I can judge politicians. You know, that president advocated torture, you know. And I can be very judgmental. I can, you know, like demonize. can really have very strong negative evaluation with a lot of, a lot of uh, reactivity. I can judge a coworker. I can judge a colleague. I can judge people at the retreat. Um, I don't know. It's a little bit different with this kind of retreat, but on silent retreats, when there's less to talk about and think about, uh, many people report that they uh, commonly um, don't have too much to do other than to judge other retreatants. <laughs> you know, that person is using such fancy clothes for a retreat. <laughs> you know, what does he or she think is happening? Or, or that per- look how much food that person eats at, at, at lunch. My God. <laughs> or I, I'm taking your laughter as partly about recognition, <laughs> and and so and we can we can we can judge the teachers, right? That was a very unorganized Dharma talk. Hmm. I like this teacher's Dharma talk. You know, whatever, whatever it might be. Familiar. So we, get a, we have a sense of what the ju- what judgmental mind is. And what's um, quite interesting for me is something that uh, after a lot of inner work myself, I started teaching on this. It was probably about uh, 12 years ago. And I've actually worked uh, with that subject. I've actually, I uh, have had uh, monthly groups on that for the last 12 years and been teaching five to seven day retreats on the topic and I'm trying to work on a book 
or I am working on a book. I shouldn't say trying to work on a book. And if I was um, more judgmental towards myself, I would have made better progress. <laughs> I have to put that in the introduction. <laughs> so, um, but it's been a fascinating topic, and it's a very deep and powerful topic. It's probably one of the two or three most um, common topics when I meet with people one-on-one, that there's some self-judgment, judgment of others, both. It's a very common, it's very endemic in this society. I think in Western societies generally. There are other issues in other societies, but not always that. The Dalai Lama, when he first came to the U.S., I was actually present when he first came to the U.S. in Massachusetts. And someone asked him a question saying, I don't think I deserve love. And he was really confused by it. He did not understand what we might call Western styles of self-hatred. And it, he went back and forth with the interpreter and finally said, in very un-Dalai Lama characteristic style, style. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're wrong. <laughs> And he later said he really didn't understand what happened with this person. And he said he spent two years talking with Western psychologists and trying to understand Western self-judgment and self-hatred because it doesn't exist in the same way. Like I say, there are other issues. There are, you know, the counterpart, but not this particular issue for for different reasons. It's a very powerful issue, as I think as we've seen, in among those in the helping professions who are in social change organizations. You know, and I, I've, like as I mentioned, I've given some trainings in those in those settings. You know that people, uh, you know, how many of us are in the helping professions? Teacher, therapist. Um, you know, we can judge ourselves for not being adequate enough. We can judge our clients for not making good enough progress. We can judge our coworkers. Obviously, it can be very strong. And if we're in social change, community organization, you know, when I, uh, I there was there was an interesting conference in in Berkeley that I was invited to be part of, called, called spiritual activism, and I worked with a group. And I asked them, what are the issues that are most difficult in your organizations? And one of the most common ones was infighting and judging each other as, uh, in, in negative ways. Maybe that's well known, right? It's very, very common. And so it's a very powerful issue in these different settings. And how to work with it, how to work with it uh, on the meditation cushion in groups. I'll just say a few words about that as well. First of all, I want to give a, a more detailed definition of what judgmental mind is or what judgments are in this sense. And I want to define it as some kind of noticing or observation <clears throat> or discernment which gets linked with reactivity. And reactivity is really a code word, a Buddhist code word that we often use for, we might say, 
for greed and hatred, or another way that we would say that some more generally in terms of our experience, it's a code word for some kind of compulsive grabbing hold of something or pushing away something, much in the way that we, in our direct experience, if we don't like sensations in the body, we will try to get rid of them. Remember that teaching the two arrows, we will contract. That's the kind of pushing away. That is really a root. Um, <clears throat> that, is, you know, that is very much the root that leads to ill will or hatred or so forth. It's a little more rudimentary, right? It's that pushing away of something that feels unpleasant, which... You know, all living beings do at times, often automatically. Humans have the capacity not to do it always automatically or compulsively. And the other side of that, and we can see that, again, in our experience here all the time, right? I don't like that thought. I don't like that feeling. I don't like this sitting. My mind's not concentrated enough. Well known? (laughs) Okay. And we can do the same thing with... um, uh, grabbing hold. We can grab hold of something experience. We can grab hold of that um, taste of the quesadilla. Weren't they good? Different, different views, right? So how many found them unpleasant? <laughs> how many found them pleasant? <laughs> okay, we don't have to vote on it. <laughs> it actually shows the subjectivity of pleasant and unpleasant. Very important aspect of our practice to recognize that. And so the, uh, there's some, you know, at the most basic level, a judgment is some kind of noticing or observation linked with reactivity, either grabbing hold or pushing away. And I'm focusing mostly on the pushing away. Right? That, so I might notice at a party someone is... Um, drunk and obnoxious, right? And I notice that. That's a noticing. That's a discernment. And then I might go into being reactive about it, you know, and really blaming and judging and being down on the person. Do you see how there are these two pieces? We could just have the noticing and the discernment without the reactivity. And if we didn't have the reactivity we might actually respond compassionately and maybe do something that we might think is helpful for that person, right? And this really points to how we work with the judgmental mind. We use different practices to separate out the noticing or discernment from the reactivity, which sounds a lot easier than it actually is. But conceptually, I think it's fairly simple as in that example with the drunk and obnoxious person. Do you see, if I wasn't reactive, I could actually be helpful. So we separate out the reactivity from the discernment and use the discernment for the purposes of compassionate action. So I might have a very uh, judgmental view of a politician. I might say that politician, as I mentioned, is the president advocated torture. Well, that may be very, very accurate. And that's, that's one of the tricks because judgmental mind actually has some truth to it. It's like the judgmental mind says, hey, we got some truth. Don't mind the reactivity. 
reactivity is okay because we're tr- we got the truth. And that's actually sometimes how the mind works if we think we're righteous, doesn't it? Right? I got the truth so I can be righteous and obnoxious, but I'll just call it being truth, having the truth. <laughs> and so um, we learn that, so this is not at all about getting rid of the discernment. There's a very interesting um, recording that my sister got for me. She went to the, uh, she was visiting a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, and she went to the King Center in, in Atlanta. And she was in the gift shop the, for, for Martin Luther King. She went, and she went to the gift shop and she knew that, um, you know, he's an important person for me. And she looked around for something to get me. And she found in the uh, little basket of CDs um, a CD called Judging Others. <laughs> And she said, oh, he'll love that. And it was actually a, a little-known sermon that King gave in 1967 at the uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, I think, in Atlanta, which was his father's church, I think. And, and um, in it, he starts off by saying, he actually gives a Christian analysis, which is very parallel to the one I've given. He said, why shouldn't we judge? You know, because he's, he's taking off on the passage in the Christian Bible where it says, judge not lest you be judged. You know, why do you why do you judge about the uh, the the splinter in your brother's eye when all the time you have a plank in your own? Do you remember that? <laughs> Some of you. And uh, and King's, King was interpreting that passage, and he said, of course we should speak out against racism. Of course we should be discerning there. But he says when, we're, when we become judgmental, all sorts of things happen. We polarize from the other person. We can't come from love. We can't, we, we uh, actually become, often become deluded seeing the negative in others, but not seeing our own negative and so forth. And he, he elucidated a whole set of uh, issues with, with judgment. But he, the point I'm making, he said, definitely keep the discernment. He basically, his version of saying what I'm saying would be, keep the discernment and connect it with love. Which is, which is not so far. I gave a more Buddhist interpretation, which was separate the discernment from the reactivity and use it with compassion. So do you get the sense of the framework? So, a few more brief comments, and maybe, maybe I can bring this up some further in two nights, because there's a lot that could be said. That being the framework, how do we work with the judgments? What I have found in working over the years is that there are two basic ways to work with judgments. The starting, the starting practices and... You know, in these groups, we, you know, some of them I've worked with for up to three or four years. And actually, I take people through what is something like a 12-month curriculum. So it takes a while. It's deep, you know. And, and actually, it's very, it's very powerful because the judgmental mind, when we look at it, actually takes us deeply into the unconscious structures of self. 
And for me, it's a very concrete way to illuminate the nature, you know, what David was calling the structure of lack that's in, in the self, because so much of the judgments when we pin it down actually come from those childhood and family situations where we think, in terms of self-judgment, where we think I'm inadequate or I'm not okay when we really trace it back. And that takes some time. There are all sorts of roots of judgment. You know, some of them are more in families. Some of them are more in culture and society. You know, people, um, people in, I think we know people in particular groups receive messages from the society that you're not okay. We have in-groups and out-groups and people who are um, historically people who have been African-American or Asian-American or at different historical times it's also been people we now call white, people who were Irish or Italian or Jewish were seen negatively. In, this hist- in the history of this culture. It might come from Jewish ancestry. My father couldn't go to medical school, actually, because of uh, quotas. You know? and, there were, and there were messages that were given, and people internalized them. People internalized that message. <clears throat> this is from, uh, people know the comedian Margaret Cho? This is from her, so get ready. <laughs> okay. If you are a woman... If you're a person of color, if you're a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you're a person of size, if you're a person of intelligence, if you're a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. (laughs) And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially women and gay men's culture. It's all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know when you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly... Don't you know that's not your authentic self? But that is billions upon billions of advertising, dollars of advertising, magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself. Sorry for the usually non-Dharmic language, but... Okay, it's okay. Um, so that you will turn your hard-earned money and, and spend it uh, at the mall on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. <laughs> When you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to call yourself an American. You will hesitate to report a rape. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution, and our revolution is long overdue. So maybe I'll post that. <laughs> so how do, we, you know, how do we counteract that? Uh, many, many levels. You know, so it's social. There's social messages from family, from difficult experiences. Trauma can produce uh, um, a lot of, tremendous amount of self-judgment. Very, it can be very, very, very <clears throat> excuse me, very deep. So... <clears throat> I'll just start us on this practice and, and, and then close. Um, the two foundational practices that we found, that I've, that I've found with colleagues I work with, for working with judgments, are first working with mindfulness and second working with loving kindness and other heart practices. Those are the starting points. And each of those can be taken way, way more deeply. 
So we start with mindfulness, just tracking when the judgments are there, noticing them, counting the judgments, noticing they're there, starting to secondly feel what they're like. What does it feel like in the body? Partly so we can recognize the judgments. Sometimes self-judgment is like a fog that just comes over us for three hours or three days. Do you know that? That one is like a fog or a cloud. What does it feel like in the body? Typically, the body organizes around judgments. And actually, like for me, when I'm, if I'm judging myself, my chest is, is contracted, my hands are a little bit tight, and my whole body is in a different state. So some of the methods we actually use work a lot with the body to actually shift out of those states, learn how to shift out of those states. So we see what the experience is, we also start to see patterns. What kind of patterns trigger the judgments? We start to have some intelligence about what we notice. As we go more deeply in the patterns, we may start to get a sense of underlying core beliefs that are driving the judgments. I might have a deeper belief that's actually subterranean at first, that I'm not okay, or that the world is dangerous. I better beware of people. There are a lot of a lot of beliefs like that, and ultimately we can transform those. So I'm giving a very short version now for for reasons of time. And the second approach we find is that partly because as we go into the judgmental mind, it actually is is rather painful. What I have found actually is that judgments are a kind of defense mechanism that cover over unacknowledged pain. And as we go into the judgments, we find that pain. It might be that pain of being five years old and thinking, I'm not okay. We go into that. We need a lot of the heart practices. We need loving kindness, forgiveness, compassion to really, and have those be regular practices. So if we're working and looking at judgments of any kind, judgments of self, of other, very good to do heart practices and have a regular practice of loving kindness, which will, I think will, uh, probably most of you are familiar with that, some not, we'll, we'll teach that I think in a day or two and, and have that be a little bit more of a regular practice. I think I'll end, end with that pointing to how we practice. Essentially, um, seeing how the judgments are, we might also start to get a sense, where is the discernment and where is the reactivity? What am I noticing that's actually accurate? And you can see how this starts to be connected with views because a lot of the judgments are going way up the ladder, right? And we actually, when we work with the judgmental mind, we actually come down closer to experience. What am I really noticing? How much have I extrapolated? How much have I gone to negative stories about myself or another person?
And so in both of these practices, we have to really study our minds over and over again, practicing with views, practicing judgments. We have to be really, to do this practice and bring it out into the world, we have to really know very well our own minds and essentially take responsibility for it. Know them very well, study over and over and over again. One of the glories of our practice is that on retreats sometimes, this has been the way it has been for me, sometimes a retreat just, uh, a silent retreat just appears like, oh, the theme is fear. Oh, and I, I've spent one whole month retreat, where two-month retreat where the main theme was judgments. Another retreat where I was angry for um, 10 days in a row for 18 hours a day. Got to study anger. And when one does that over time, you get familiar with it, and it's not the same thing anymore. So we have to study these phenomena a lot, get really familiar with them. It's not easy work. We have to study our own reactivity. This is really, I think, someone who wants to go out into the world and help others needs to become an expert on views, on judgments, on one's own reactivity, and ground in mindfulness, in wisdom, in loving kindness, in forgiveness, compassion, and find ways to bring that out into the world. So thank you so much for your kind attention. We have about... uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.